From CPR News and KRCC, this is Colorado Matters. Today, an Afghan medical student who has resettled in Colorado. Her father was killed in a bomb blast as they tried to escape Kabul a year ago. The only thing that came in my mind was just all my things that I learned in hospital to help him, just like at CPR, those things. Your medical training kicked in. Yes. 21-year-old Salma Rahin was seriously injured in the explosion and spent weeks in the hospital before coming to Colorado, a state that reminds her of home and is becoming her home. Afghanistan is also a mountainous country. Plus, a city learns to open its arms to displaced people like Rahim. Broomfield is a very affluent area, and we found out very quickly that we were not equipped to serve refugees, so we figured out how. Meet the city councilwoman and military spouse behind Broomfield's transformation. You wait for the bus, the weekend, and you wait for your morning coffee to finish brewing. But you don't have to wait to get live news from CPR. Just come to CPR.org or listen live on the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Our guest today is just 21, but has already endured a lifetime's worth of challenges. Salma Rahin fled Afghanistan a year ago and was caught in that horrific bomb blast at Kabul's airport. Now, she and the family that survived live in Broomfield, a community that has opened its arms to displaced people. You'll hear a little later from the city councilwoman behind that effort. First, Salma Rahim. Salma, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. <laughs> um, would you tell me a bit about what your life was like in Afghanistan before you left? You were in school, right? Yeah. Before I left, I was in a medical school at my third year of medical school. Becoming a doctor? Yeah, becoming a doctor. So the educational system in Afghanistan is kind of different. Like you have to do seven years of medical school and then for being a specialist, you have to do four years more. You were less than halfway through, yes. I guess. Yeah. Um, is it unusual for a woman to become a doctor in Afghanistan? Uh, actually, it's not usual. It's too hard to become a doctor first. Then in Afghanistan, it's it's kind of like impossible because the education system or education for girls um, are very hard or impossible in Afghanistan because the people are, uh, there's a no right for women so there. It sounds to me like you are an exceptional person and that there's probably something about you that meant that you had progressed that far in medical school. What do you think allowed you to persevere, to keep going? Where should I start? My father was a doctor. Yeah, so it was my dream to be a doctor and working with my father together. So even though, like, Afghanistan is not a good place for women, but... Because my family was educated uh, family, like my sister was in a law school, and me in medical school, my father was doctor, and my mom was a math teacher in middle school. So, yeah, and also my grandfather was an engineer, and he done his school in here in America. In the United States. Yeah, in So United you States. came from a very educated family. Yes. And exactly. you had a lot of role models. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I imagine they weren't going to let you fail mm-hmm. either. Yes, exactly, yeah. Um, you are now, just to fast forward a little bit, you are now working as a medical assistant at an allergy 
and asthma clinic yes. in Colorado. Do you sometimes feel overqualified for that work? Do you sometimes think, I should be a doctor by now? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, think I would feel that way too. Yes. Yeah. It's my dream to be a doctor. So it was my dream to coming to the United States like, and continue my education and living here, but not in a way that we camp here. So This is not the dream way you got here. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So for now, I have to stop from somewhere. I need to be in, like, in public and keep working on and be familiar with all people, all the systems. All you've that. got a network. You've yeah. got to learn yeah, the healthcare exactly. system here. Yes. Well, let's talk a bit about how you got here. Mm-hmm. You would have preferred a nice flight as a student yeah. coming to study in mm-hmm. the United States. But I'd, I'd like you to take us back, if you feel comfortable, okay. to the day at the airport. Mm-hmm. This is in Kabul. Yes. You were trying to get out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And something rather horrific happened. Yep. Can you tell me what that was? So, when we know that the uh, Taliban camp, like I was in I was in a school and I had an exam, and just I heard that Taliban camp and all the students was, they cried a lot, and it was a very bad situation. Your, your so, concern to that point was that it was a test day. Yeah, it was a test day. That's what you were thinking of. Mm-hmm. And then the Taliban come in. Yes, exactly. So I was in a medical school, but I also work with different organizations that help families to know their rights, especially women's and especially women's, me and my sister both. And before the Taliban's came in Afghanistan and they took over to Afghanistan, we received some treat leaders as well. Like, we know that you're working with this Oh, you were getting threat letters yeah, from yeah, the Taliban yeah, because yeah. they knew of this work you yes, were doing to help women. Yes, Me, my sister, and as well my father, we were all hiding in a relative uh, house. So the point is the Taliban were a threat to you. Yes. Even before they took control. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, even before. So, uh, so one day before we tried to come out from Afghanistan, because my father was in Iran, and there was like a very horrible day. The Taliban came to our house. They knocked our house, and they entered to our house. They tried to harm us, like me and my sister, like physical things. And they were asking about my father, where is he? So my mother and my grandmother and my siblings, they tried to fight with them. And that time, we was able to escape. And uh, Did you think that you would not have escaped? Did yeah. you think you were going to die? Yeah. My brother, he is 17. So he's have a very big body. So he fight with them. Mm. So there was a chance to escape for us first. Then we ran away. I asked about the airport. Mm-hmm. You went to the fact that the threats began long before you got to the airport. Yes, yeah. exactly. So my father decided to going out of country. He worked with a lot of foreign people. So I don't know which source actually, but... There was some help to get you out. Is yes. That, is that what that means? Yes, yes, exactly. So he received a call and my father said, let's go. Even we didn't pick anything, just... One bowl of water, 
then we went to the airport and uh, we passed the safe doors like there is a door to entering to the airport yeah these have been yeah. described to me as gates yeah gate yeah yeah yeah, yeah gate uh, so we passed that gate and we was in safe zone when the explosion happened everything changed in a one second was this the explosion that killed so many yeah so many people so i lost my father he was just next to me and i, I tried to help to take a bag from him and just put it on the ground then explosion happened and when i opened my eyes all my family members were around me wounded injured and they wasn't conscious so the only thing that, that I, I thought like came in my mind when I saw my father he's <clears throat> uh, excuse me no take your time and only tell this story if you want to okay you can say stop if you want uh, no problem so that, that time, the only thing that came in my mind was just all my things that I learned in hospital to help him, just like at CPR, those things. And Your medical training kicked in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I tried to I give him like some breathing and CPR, but <clears throat> I tried to ask the people who was around me, like some military people who was around me, so I asked them to help him, but when they saw I was injured, when they saw I was bleeding, and they tried to carry me to the airport hospital. And when I, I told him that my father is back there, and he's alive, and they saw him, and they said he's not alive, and just they left him there. So family members. How many family members did you lose that day? Three family members. Three family members. Yeah, my so, father, mm -hmm. two of my cousins. Like, we grew up together. So it was like my brother. And, yeah, we lost them that time. And I didn't know that I lost my father when I, up to three months. Yeah. So he it was not, in fact, immediately dead? No. When I gave him, like, breathing and... CPR, I thought he's alive. Yeah. But uh, when we evacuated from Kabul airport to Qatar. So you evacuated from Kabul. You yeah. got flown to Qatar. Yeah. And we was one night at there and all the member family got injured and they had their own operations things. And uh, after one night, we then evacuated to the Germany. So then to Germany. Then to Germany, yeah. Another surgery, another operations, those things for all family. So had your father been left behind in Afghanistan? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He left behind and one of my sisters, she's 20 years old, and one of my brothers, he's 17. On that time, they left there in airport. So we wasn't sure they are, they are alive, they're not alive, uh, what happened on them. So, yeah, in Germany, we was there for two more days. After that, we evacuated to the, uh, Washington, D.C., Washington. Walter Reed Hospital. And all this time, 
Help me understand what's happening to your father. You you didn't get news. I didn't have anything to contact with them, uh -huh. like phones or those things. And also, I wasn't conscious. I was unconscious. Because you too had been getting operations yes, for your injuries. Yes, yes, yes. I I wasn't able to remember their face. I just remember that bloody face. That's all. When we arrived to Walter Reed Hospital. In D.C.? In D.C., yes. And we was there about four months in hospital. So You were there for four months being four cared months, for? Yes, like in a jail. <laughs> like in a jail? <laughs> yes. You were probably going stir-crazy. Yes, yes. And what was the extent of your injuries? I got injured on my shoulder. I had a broken shoulder, a very bad and severe broken shoulder and arm. Like I got so many shrapnels inside of my arm and now I still have a rod inside a of rod. my arm. Yeah. And some of your siblings are in that hospital with you. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. When did you learn your father had died and when had he died? Okay. He died at that explosion day. Maybe at that moment that explosion happened. But there was still some question. Yes. And you didn't get the news for, as you said, quite a while. Yes, yes. After 15 or 16 days, I was able to contact with my sister, who she was left in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And she said, he is 50-50. Like, maybe he'll be alive, or maybe he's, he will be not. Did she know? She know that he's not alive. She wanted to spare you. Yes, Because yes. you were getting better. Yes, yes, because all my family members was in a very bad situation, health situation, so. Do you understand why she did that? <laughs> Are you mad at her? No, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You understand that she was trying to protect you? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. So, three of my siblings was with me, and my mom also. One of my siblings, my brother, he's 14. He got very severe injury on his belly, and uh, like all shrapnel things, and also his legs, his eye. He's still having a shrapnel inside of his eye. So more of your family has been able to evacuate mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Who lives with you in Colorado now? My mom, three of my sisters, and two of my brothers. They're all right now in a school, like high school, middle school, and elementary. And my mom also, also my grandmother. Yeah, she's also with us, my father's mother. Your father's mother? Yeah. So having her must be a way to have your father feel maybe a bit closer, do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Tell us one good memory of your father. So the day that I accepted, like, in a medical school, I was very good and very wonderful day. Was it a letter that came in the mail? So I just saw it on the internet. Okay. Uh, yeah. That was very old school of me to think a letter would come. Okay. Yes. You saw I, it online I, that you'd been accepted to medical school. Yes. Yes. So, especially my father, he was too happy for me. He was too happy. Like, he had a hope to, like, someday I'm working with him in a clinic. And it was, it was a very good memory of him. Because he was a doctor as well. Yeah. Really. Did you celebrate that night? Uh, 
yeah, just kind of family celebrating things. Yeah, and whenever I'm thinking about my father, I just remember all my childhood memories. Yeah. Salma Rahin is our guest. She and her family fled Afghanistan a year ago. They'd been Taliban targets. When we come back, how they ended up in Broomfield, Colorado, and why she says she has a wounded mind. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This week, we're hearing from some of the Afghan refugees who have resettled in Colorado after the U.S. withdrawal and Taliban takeover. Today, it's 21-year-old Salma Rahim, who was in medical school in Kabul when she learned she and her family had to escape. Her father died trying. Now, she lives in Broomfield with her mother, grandmother, and siblings, whom she's supporting as a medical assistant. How did you end up in Broomfield? Broomfield, Colorado. Have you heard of Broomfield, Colorado? <laughs> so my Aunt Ella, she's living here for 20 years. Okay. And your Aunt Ella is with us today. Yes. She's done some light interpreting. Yes, exactly. So So you'd heard of Broomfield and you'd yes, heard of Colorado. Yes, exactly. So when we came to the Washington, she was the only person we know her. So she came to the Walters Hospital and she made a connection with the case worker peoples and immigration peoples to send us here. Mm-hmm. So how do you like it? I like here. It's very similar to our back home, back country. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's what nice. about it is similar? Just like the layout or um, what? Afghanistan is also a mountainous country. Yeah. Yeah. So Colorado is also a mountain country. Are the mountains comforting to you? Yes, exactly. I yeah. feel very relaxed whenever I'm what seeing the mountains and walking or hiking. How do you like the work you're doing as a medical assistant? It's a very good start for me. Mm -hmm. Those people I'm working, they are wonderful people. Uh, Do they know your story? Actually, my doctor, she knows. She knows? Yeah. The doctor you work with? Yes, the doctor I'm working with. She knows. You know what your story makes me think of, Salma, is that when I'm walking down the street or I'm in the grocery store Mm -hmm. or at a shopping mall, Mm -hmm. I have no idea what people have been through that I pass every day. Does that that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have such stories and experiences in your your life. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so I'm grateful that you could share them with us. Thank you. What do you turn to for comfort? What gives you joy right now? Mm. I think you said hiking, maybe. Yes, sometimes hiking, but 
like I don't have the time to <laughs> hike or going to shopping centers or just walking around. Yeah. Uh, most of the times I'm just. It looks like I'm physically good, but my mind is. I like. I have a wounded mind. <laughs> you have a wounded mind. You say. Yes. Do you get any help? Do you get? Do you have a therapist? Or? Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh, good. Has that helped? Yeah, it helped me a lot. What makes you think you have a wounded mind? No, well, before everything happened, I had a, I had a hope, I had a wish, I had a dream. When the, everything happened and I came here right now, I'm just thinking about uh, how should I support my family. How should I my family be good with financial things? And right now I'm just trying to keep working. So you're in survival mode. Yes. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for hope and dreaming. Exactly. Yeah, I can understand that. How would you say your family is doing? So I don't know how they think, but I know whenever I'm just seeing to their face, I know what they're thinking. I know what they feel. Do you think they have wounded minds too? Yes, exactly. Especially mm-hmm. my mom, my sibling, all, all, all family members. Do you think you'll get better? Hopefully. Hopefully. There's a little hope, I guess. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Do you have nightmares? A lot. A lot. Right now, my nightmares is about... So that accident happened on August 26th. When the August starts, my nightmare all came. So the, the explosion at the airport was in yes, August. And yes, every August yes, is a exactly. reminder to you. Yes, and also my main concern is about our immigration status. But you are you want to stay here? Do you want to stay here? Sure, yeah. I lost everything. And there is no home, hope to go back. If I go back, there, there is like I'm in hell. Do you know what I mean? They took everything of us. You'd be afraid as well for your life there, in addition to mm-hmm. not having hope. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Exactly. Thank you so much for talking to us. I'm really grateful. I really appreciate because you heard my story. And I want to share it with other people too. You guys are amazing. <laughs> why do you want to share your story? Just before we go, why is it meaningful to you? So, I just want to people know immigrant family, how they feel, how they think, how all the things happen to move in here. And just want to share my feel with all people. But you want people to have a better understanding of what yeah, many immigrants face they, yes. when they're here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of that idea that we walk past people and we have no idea what they've been through. Yes. You know. Afghan refugee Salma Rahin, who has resettled with her family in Broomfield. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how that community has laid out the welcome mat to displaced people, even though Broomfield wasn't amply equipped to do so at first.
what your town might learn. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Once upon a time, Loveland was the heart of Colorado's thriving cherry industry. That began in the late 1800s, and by the 1900s, there were 10,000 acres planted in Montmorency and Morello sour cherries. Those orchards raked in millions in early 20th century dollars and gave jobs to nearly every local family. Cherry stands and canning factories popped up around town. In 1930, Loveland had its first cherry blossom festival. Mrs. A.V. Benson invented cherry cider about the same time, and soon the federal government was requisitioning Colorado cherries to feed the troops. But after a hard freeze in 1954, orchards were neglected. Cheaper fruit started coming in from out of state, and Colorado's cherry industry faded. But Loveland continues to celebrate this sweet chapter of its history every summer with a cherry pie festival. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover, Afghan refugees have begun carving out new lives for themselves in Colorado. Before the break, we heard from a young woman, Salma Rahin, who's trying to restart her medical career here. Yesterday, we met longtime interpreter for the U.S. military, Ahmed Siddiqui. Honestly, Colorado is home. Colorado opened his arms to us and, 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 and embraced us and gave us home that is home. At this moment, I cannot go to Afghanistan. It's not safe. It's not safe. And for how long it will stay like this, I don't know. Hmm. We must, I must, my family must make it home. Color, it must make Colorado home. We must make Colorado home. You don't have home. a choice, is Even what I hear if you I say. do have choice, honestly, if I do have choice, that country doesn't have a government. My daughter is fifth grade, and she will be sixth grade next year. Sixth grades till 12th grades are not allowed to study. My, I have three daughters. We know what's the, the woman rights there. <laughs> we know the girls' education rights. Should I allow my daughters and my wife to go on that situation? I can't. Siddiqui is something of a catalyst for Broomfield's commitment to displaced people. You see, an army captain he served with lives in Broomfield. So does the captain's wife, city councilwoman Heidi Hankel, who started the Broomfield Resettlement Task Force. Councilwoman, you have listened to our conversation with these Afghans who have fled to Colorado. You listened to every word, and you seem... Uh, so moved by their stories, which I know you have heard before. How, how do they affect you? Um, I think I see the humanity in every story. I look at my own family, and I think, how would I feel if my 21-year-old daughter went through that? What Salma experienced, how would I feel if I were responsible for my family that I could never tell them that I worked for the U.S. government. And the day that I had to tell them, not only did I have to tell them like Ahmed did on the day that Kabul fell, but he had to tell his children what he actually did for a living. They didn't know what he did for a living. And so it was to protect him and his family. And I would imagine that that must have been 
one of the hardest things he's had to ever explain is that everything that you've ever known will be taken away from us. And not only taken away, but in a, in a violent way. He had to explain to his kids within seconds, this is why we're moving. This is why we're packing. This is why we're, we have to go to an entirely different country. It forces you to consider your own family and, wa- and walk in their shoes then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to a year ago. Your family, specifically your husband, Scott, has long ties to uh, Ahmed Siddiqui, who served as his interpreter in Afghanistan. And that's how uh, this resettlement group started, right? Correct. Yeah. My husband served in 2006 uh, when we were in Maryland. Uh, He was actually out of the army and they pulled him back into the army. He was on inactive ready reserve. And I was taking care of my disabled mother. I was changing her diapers. And I had a one-year-old as well, changing his diapers. And during that time was probably the hardest year of my life. Um, Without what was going on in Afghanistan. Exactly. And I wasn't even in Afghanistan. And during that time, I knew that Ahmed's job was to help protect Scott. And at the time, of course, he called him Kevin. But I sent care packages over there for not only Scott, but the whole support team. And that included Kevin. And, and he had to use the name Kevin as a way of keeping safe. Correct. As an interpreter, as someone who is aiding the United States. Correct. Uh-huh. And then um, after he got out of the Army, we moved back home to Colorado, which is home for me. Um, and Scott and I met at Colorado State University. So coming back to home to Colorado was, meant the world to me. This was home to me. And then fast forward, when Kabul fell, we had been working for months to try to get Ahmed out of Afghanistan anyway. Um, I had been working with Congressman Joe Nagus's office, um, but there was such a backlog with the Muslim ban and everything, uh, we could not get that paperwork moved quick enough. Um, and the day that Kabul fell... <gasps> I couldn't look at my husband knowing that he felt like he left a man behind. I have never seen his face like that, ever. I've never seen him so sunken and so depressed so quickly. And this is a man who's gone to war and seen a lot of death. He went on over 600 missions. Right after the special forces went through, that's what he did is he helped rebuild the nation. But he saw the carnage. He saw a lot of war, and he understood that if Ackman were left behind, he knew what was going to happen to him. And that meant for sure death of not only Ackman, but his wife and his kids. And we could not let that happen. How many families is your group serving now? Uh, Currently, we serve seven Afghan families and two Ukrainian families. Oh, this has grown. This has grown quite a bit. We have over 40 refugees. We have a volunteer team that helps with, you know, volunteer training. We have a person who's in charge of ESL, uh, another person that's in charge of transportation. English is a second language, yes, by the English way. English is so, a second language yeah. and help with transportation. We have a social worker that helps us navigate what Medicaid looks like for families and help find us a dentist, for instance. It's very hard to find a dentist in Broomfield that has Medicaid. Broomfield is a very affluent area, and we found out very quickly that we were not equipped to serve refugees, so we figured out how. That's an interesting thing to say. This is an affluent area that was ill-equipped, right? Yes. That seems almost like a contradiction. Yes. And while serving on city council and pushing 
and pushing affordable housing because it is already an emergency within Colorado. Now it made it really real. Not only is it an emergency for people who have been living here, it's an emergency for people who have no homes in another country fleeing the violence. And here we have constituents in Broomfield, our families, who say, my family needs to come to Broomfield. Will you help us? You, you, you were saying that you think Broomfield has become something of a beacon. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. Um, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel either. So we are learning from others. Um, Aurora has a great immigration program. We're also learning from Lutheran Family Services as a resettlement agency. But I will tell you that the resettlement agencies were very hesitant to resettle refugees at all in Broomfield because we didn't have affordable housing. We didn't have the, the perceived infrastructure. And while that was true, we are making the infrastructure and we're moving forward with having ESL classes here in Broomfield. We're moving forward with really getting them on the list for affordable housing that's coming up soon. We are literally the fastest county in the state of Colorado to get our families their benefits. Um, our, the You've cracked that nut somehow. We've cracked that nut, but I th also think too that we were structured to serve people. So that part of it, uh, with our health and human services and our workforce center. Where we are now. Where we are now. So maybe what I hear you saying is that in learning to serve refugees, you might have learned to serve your own domestic constituents better. Do you think that's true? Correct. Because that was going to be my next question is, <laughs> this is a lot for a city council person to take on in addition yeah. to all of the duties of a of a city. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're city council members, and but we're also people in the community that really care about our community. I've never met a more engaged city council. Part of that, though, when I ran for office, a big part of my, I would say, platform or whatever you want to call it, was housing. My mother was unhoused. She was homeless. And she had paranoid schizophrenia. And so I didn't have a home growing up. We moved from house to house. I grew up in basements. I slept in people's bathtubs. This was not an abstract concept to you, the this idea This wasn't of an abstract housing. concept. And, and, and it really makes me feel for a family of nine, like Selma, you know, when she calls me and says, hey, uh, November, they're going to raise our rent $700 a month. I mean, and that hits me. And that hits me in a way that, you know, that I, I really cannot explain. But we have a team of people that are willing to step forward um, and helping support these families. But the word needs to get out there that it isn't just uh, agencies that do this. This is volunteer teams like us. And if we rely on the resettlement agencies, if we rely on the federal government, if we even rely on the state government, it doesn't work. It's not enough. It's not enough. Uh -huh. And so we have developed and, and, and done fundraising and um, received over $50,000 for these families, but it is spread between all nine families. And so does this become replicable, do you think, then in other communities? Like, do you hope that a city council person in Zanesville hears this? <laughs> I just whipped yes. that out, by the way, that's in Ohio. But, you know, <laughs> like that other communities could do this. They can. Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. it, it's highly replicable. And it is, it is, it seems daunting at first because you're like, it's hard enough for me. I personally co-sponsor 
uh, the Siddiqui family, and then another two young gentlemen. What that means is you paid money out of your own checking account for this. Yes. Oh. Yeah. It's yeah. not a small sacrifice to sponsor families. Correct. And I do my own private fundraising for those families as well. And I also start private fundraising for each family because we need those those private dollars. We have two women in Westminster, for instance, who are fully reliant on our community money. Um, they haven't been able to tap into any nonprofits yet. Um, and even then, our resettlement agencies weren't even allowed to take the Ukrainians and help them with TANF funding um, or any sort of grant funding that they had. TANF is food assistance. Correct. Um, and this also speaks to the difficulty of getting on your feet, even when you're someone who wants to stand. So the employment situation, mm -hmm. what do you make of, of, say, Ahmed's difficulties finding employment? Because he doesn't want to take the help. He wants to help himself. <laughs> exactly. You know? I mean, it was just a true testament for him to be in these refugee camps and for him to actually be helping. And people were questioning him, are you getting paid for this? And he says, no, like, I just want to help. And he was helping even just serve food. He was just helping wherever he needed to. So this sounds like a nut that you haven't necessarily been able to crack, the employment nut. Correct. And, and I think, I'll be completely honest, I think there's a lot of racism at play. What makes you say that? Um, at his first employment that he had, uh, he started off, you know, learning the ropes. And American systems are completely different than what they're used to in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, too, there's a lot of cash flow. In America, we have a lot of credit. We have a lot of, you know, spreadsheets that we're looking at, right? Um, so it isn't so much as calling people. It is tracking things on spreadsheets. It's, it's using systems that we're used to as Americans. I think one of the instances was, you know, perhaps we should have had him more trained for that job. But I will say that they were gracious enough to uh, hire him. But at the same time, once they hired him, they started giving... What we felt like, and Ahmed is very humble about this, you know, he won't say it outright, but I feel like they gave the immigrant more work. And they started off with five days a week, and then that increased longer and longer and longer. All of a sudden, he was working six days a week, 12 hours a day. And they were giving him some of the most difficult um, projects to work on. And his younger cohorts and, and employees were saying, this doesn't look right. Like, we should be taking that burden on, not you, Ahmed. And I can imagine Ahmed saying, sure, keep giving me work. I, I bet he yes. has a tough time saying no. He does. He does. And because he just wants to do so good at what he does. Mm -hmm. I do say, too, though, that, that there needs to be a good conversation about re-education, because education here is vastly different in Afghanistan than it is here in America, too. So here we go to a four-year college, then they go to medical school. There, right after high school, they go straight to medical school. That's why she's 21 and already in medical school. Mm -hmm. um, You're speaking of Salma Rahim there. Yeah, Salma. And, and, and so the, just the education systems are different. But also the certifications are different as well. So um, uh, we have, for instance, a dignitary here in Broomfield who is used to having drivers, guards, everything. And even Ahmed was too. Um, and he has his PhD. Um, it does not translate here in America. So we have to make sure we get rental assistance because they can't own anything yet. They don't have credit. We need to make sure that they have that re-education. And so when people say, how long does it take to resettle? I tell them, how long do you have? 
mm-hmm. because it never really kind of settles down, at least for two years. Some of the resettlement agencies will say, well, six months, and then you, you're on your own. They have to sign something that says, after this amount of time, I will be off the off assistance. the support. And it's a very difficult conversation. What you've told me here today makes me think that as much as there are accusations the United States wasn't prepared for the fall of Afghanistan, there is a whole different question of how prepared the U.S. is for the long tail of the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And the experiences you have described for these refugees is that long tail. Mm-hmm. And it's their kids' long tail, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, so many times we don't think about when we serve uh, in a war. My husband served over there. His family was over here in America. When Ahmed served in the war, he had to go back home and still endure that war. The Taliban would always hunt him down, always try to find his family. And so there's a huge you know, difference in serving over there versus here. Mm. But the reason why these families are coming to America, yes, it's for themselves and for their freedom. However, I will tell you that the real story is going to be the story that the kids tell. They're going to be that, that long haul story of this is what it's like to watch my parents have PTSD Those are the difficulties that these kids, you know, go to school with. And every time we say that someone is different in class, what does that look like? And eventually that difference is going to be great power. Oh, you think that they'll channel that into industriousness or, yeah. And of course, that's been true for so many immigrants over the generations. Councilwoman, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to serve. Broomfield City Councilwoman Heidi Hankel. She helped found the Resettlement Task Force there and recently won the community's Angel Award for her work with Afghan and Ukrainian refugees. Ukrainians in Colorado are trying to go about their lives while they worry about family and friends caught up in the uncertainty of war. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce met a man who's keeping a close ear on the news from his native country while focusing on his old world craft. A smartphone at the front of Alexander Belinchuk's Colorado Springs shop plays YouTube field reports from Ukrainian military officials most of the day, occasionally drowned out by sanding and sewing. That phone is really the only piece of modern technology in this place. Belinchuk calls the rest of his heavy industrial equipment by a different name. I call it's grandpop machine. You know, because they're really old. Grandpop machine work better than new machine because they make it from good quality metal. Hello. Hi. I hate to interrupt. Don't worry. I'm working. Belinchuk decided he wanted to be a cobbler and shoe repairman when he was 14. He's in his 60s now. I need these shoes to be comfortable for my son's wedding. Customer Vicky Sayre just bought these. And they're the right length, but they're not quite wide enough for my wide feet. He has her try them on, feels them on her feet. He writes the price on a yellow ticket and pencil, says they'll be ready tomorrow. And then he's back behind his front counter, hammering a new sole into the heel of a cowboy boot. That counter, um, 
the untrained eye would say it's an absolute mess. So many different nails, different knives, different professional tools. So organized chaos. Yes, yes, I try, but it's still working shop. <laughs> Predominantly working on shoes, though Hi. he'll kind of do whatever. What would you charge to sharpen this knife? Uh, three dollars. Three bucks. He only takes cash or check. You can find his crazy Alex shoe repair listed on Google Maps. Other than that, he does not advertise. My advertising gets my skills. Belinchuk followed his son out to Denver after repairing shoes in Brooklyn for 30 years. Yeah, he was done with New York. Job, train, bills. Three years ago, he took over the long-standing Bond shoe repair shop north of downtown Colorado Springs. He still commutes from Denver six days a week. He likes his house there, and it's close to his wife's job. Even though his life is here, Belinchuk's heart is largely in Ukraine, which is now in the middle of a war with no end in sight. He says this video he's watching is describing efforts to destroy a large battery of Russian artillery. There have been bombings near where he's from, and he has a lot of family still over there. He can't reach any of them. If they survive, if they move, if they stay, no idea. So he listens to the military reports on his phone, and when he has a spare moment, he goes to the back of his cluttered shoe repair shop, turns on the fluorescent light hanging above a small table. I make it, I work with copper. Thin copper ovals, maybe three feet long, two feet wide, he delicately hammers into them. This is Mary. Religious figures. Jesus. And he prays for his home country, wrestling with his own good fortune as so many suffer. Because we got a beautiful, nice day, sunny day, nice weather, plenty of food. What about these people who... <sighs> people doesn't have bread. Maybe he would go back over there to help, he says. Maybe, if he was younger. Instead, he watches from afar and keeps busy. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. It could soon be a lot cheaper to make your home more climate-friendly. That's thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. The new law includes billions of dollars in discounts for solar panels and electric appliances like stoves and water heaters. But as CPR's Sam Brash reports, that money isn't available just yet. It's a good day for Cynthia Allison. For years, the Boulder resident has dreamed of weaning her home off fossil fuels. And today, it's finally happening. I am an anti-fracking activist, and I have decided to put my money where my mouth is. Contractors tore out her natural gas furnace earlier this morning. The bundle of pipes and ductwork has been laid to rest on the curb. Technicians are replacing it with an air source heat pump, an all-electric machine about the size of a fridge that can efficiently warm and cool her home. It could save money in the long run, but it's expensive up front, usually upwards of $15,000 for a single-family home, according to a recent survey. It's expensive. Most people don't have that kind of money. Rebates will help anyone who might be 
on the fence. Rebates and incentives are a central strategy in the single largest climate investment in U.S. history. The Inflation Reduction Act, which President Biden signed earlier this month, sets aside almost $370 billion to cut greenhouse gas emissions. A significant portion will help discount these kinds of home energy projects. One catch, it's not clear when that funding will actually be available. Customers are calling us each day asking this exact question. And uh, just like everyone, we're trying, to, we're trying to learn and understand how it's all going to play out. This is Josh Lake. He's a founder of Elephant Energy. It's a Boulder-based startup that renovates homes to run on electricity instead of natural gas. That means organizing contractors to install heat pumps, solar panels, insulation, and other green technologies. It's knocking out the projects here, and so far, he says the company has mostly worked with wealthier customers who want to do something about climate change. Right, so once you switch all of your appliances to electric, they can then be powered from renewable energy resources, whether that's central uh, utility-scale solar and wind, or whether it's from your own residential solar or geothermal. The hope is incentives will mean all electric homes won't just be the best option for the environment. They'll be the best way to save money. People have seen what's happened in solar, and it's economically viable for most people, and you're going to see the same thing quickly happen with heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, induction stoves, all those technologies. The discounts aren't easy to figure out, though. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, homeowners can claim some tax credits on solar and energy projects completed this year. Other rebates are exclusive to moderate and low-income households, and they're not active yet. So with so many moving pieces, Lake says the first question is simple. How's your home doing? If you're a homeowner whose furnace or water heater is at the end of its life and you need to replace it before the winter, you should probably get in the queue now before the, before the wave of demand comes. If you're more on the fence about electrifying your home, he says there's no harm in waiting until policymakers hammer out some details. Dominique Gomez is the deputy director for the Colorado Energy Office. It's working with the U.S. Department of Energy to set up the new incentive programs in Colorado. This new investment, this new historic investment, it's just going to take a little time for them to digest and, and get out the door because we want to spend it fast, but we sure want to spend it well as well. But a timeline for the federal incentives is unclear at this point. Sam Kalish is with Rewiring America, an advocacy group focused on electrification. He expects most states will start using the new federal money to offer rebates sometime next year. It's a lot of uncertainty, but he says it shouldn't distract from the bigger picture. Congress has kickstarted a new era of climate policy. Prior climate policy tends to focus on the supply side, where we get our energy, and not the demand side, how we use our energy and how we can drive the market in a way that supports these climate solutions. In other words, the Inflation Reduction Act isn't just about building lots of new solar and wind power to generate clean energy. It's about making sure regular people can afford to use it. He thinks the federal legislation will make that happen, but it's gonna take at least a few months to kick into gear. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC. 